0: I'm very pleased to welcome Scott Pritchard, 2D sequence supervisor from Industrial Light and Magic, the legendary visual effects company which has set the standard for film special effects for over 40 years and in the process created some of the most stunning images in the history of film. ILM is the perfect company to represent this year's CMC theme of all change. They are the leaders in innovation in the industry and during the session Scott will show exclusive maybe some Star Wars episode seven, I don't know, probably not. Um, exclusive behind the scenes development footage to explain how change in the visual effects industry has caused seismic shifts in the way films are produced. Please welcome Scott. Hello, yes, I'm uh, Scott Pritchard and my role at ILM London is compositing sequence supervisor. That may not make much sense right now, but for now, think of it as Nerd Wrangler. (laughs) The ILM logo, you can see here, is actually on my toolbox. I stuck it on there when I was a kid back in art college, um, and somehow it's still hanging in there. I started out in the film industry as a model maker, back when visual effects were still using models and prosthetic appliances. Um, However, those techniques were being phased out by computer graphics, so I did a master's degree at Bournemouth University. And not long after graduating, I got my first job in London and have been there ever since. So, my talk today can be divided into four sections. ILAM itself, its history, and some of the innovation that has kept it at the forefront of the industry. We do studio in London, and then we'll go behind the scenes and explore the steps involved in what we do. And before we go any further, I think it's important to make the distinction between special effects and visual effects. Special effects are done on set. So, things like explosions, prosthetics applied to actors or animatronic creatures. The important thing here is it's filmed in camera. Visual effects covers any other effect that is created outside of the camera. A colleague of mine once explained this pretty well actually. He said special effects are created by big burly fellas who like beer and explosions. And visual effects are created by people who like lattes. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is ILM? Industrial Light of Magic is a division of Lucasfilm. It was founded in 1975 to work on the original Star Wars movie. It's set standard in visual effects for the past 40 years and creating some of the most memorable images in the history of film. Uh, Having worked on over 320 films to date, ILM has won 16 Oscars, 14 BAFTAs for best visual effects, and then 29 Scientific and Technical Academy Awards. After completing Star Wars and then the Empire Strikes Back, ILM began work on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, Raiders was not a Lucasfilm project, and by doing so, ILM became the world's first independent visual effects facility. At that point, visual effects were actually done by freelance contractors who were working directly for the studio, (coughs) project by project basis. ILM was also the birthplace of a small company that eventually became Pixar. And one of the earliest image manipulation programs was written by an ILM Uh, employee in his spare time. You might have heard of it, it's called Photoshop. (laughs) So this year ILM celebrates its 40th birthday and here's a short reel showing some of our work for the last 40 years. that really don't. <laughs> Now, much of that work has inspired generations of new artists and filmmakers, and it's quite a pedigree. Now, to bring us right up to date, films that we've recently finished work on include Avengers Age of Ultron, Jurassic World, and Warcraft. And we're, right now, we're working on Ant-Man, the new James Bond film Spectre, and of course, Star Wars The Force Awakens. As you, know, as you all know, this year's conference theme is all change. Now, visual effects change is pretty much the only certainty from daily events such as script or brief changes, to more long-term change, such as the development of computer graphics. ILM has, in many cases, been the driving force behind large-scale change in the visual effects industry, and I'd like to show you a few examples of this. So in 1975, George Lucas had been working on an idea for what he called a space opera fantasy thing, Star At the time, fewer movies were being made, and even fewer of those featured large-scale visual effects george had very grandiose ideas about his movie how his movie was going to look and in particular the space battles he wanted them to look like world war ii dogfights, with the camera right in the middle of the action at the time the technology to do this simply didn't exist lucas hired about 45 people to create the shots for his film and they were supervised by a guy called john dykstra now dykstra had just spent some time at berkeley university developing a camera whose movements were controlled by computer he applied this idea to a larger film crane and uh, with this camera rig, you could actually very precisely control, plan, execute uh, cam- uh, move movements around the model. And most importantly, you, they could be repeated. Now we're talking down to thousands of an inch of the lens. It was incredibly precise. It was this that allowed the filmmakers to create the dynamic and exciting shots of X-Wings and TIE fighters that helped to make Star Wars an instant classic. The technology was called motion control, and it's still very much in use today on films such as Gravity. It was all built from scratch by his team, and Lucas himself came up with a name for this rather ragtag bunch of engineers and artists. He called it industrial magic. 1981's Dragon Slayer presented a new (coughs) challenge to Ireland to push the believability of creatures by refining stop-motion puppetry techniques. Stop-motion characters have been around in, in use since the 1890s, but they still suffered from a fundamental problem. Now, have a look at this still from 1963's Jason and the Argonauts. Ray Harryhausen's celebrated stop motion work is still considered a pinnacle of this craft, but yet it suffered from a lack of motion blur. Motion blur is caused by an object being in motion while the camera shutter is open. You can see how Jason's sword arm there has a kind of a radial blur on it there. Now look at the skeletons. Because the skeletons were models and they were stationary for each frame they were photographed, they didn't have any of this motion blur. The result is that it looks a little bit stroby when you're viewing it in motion. So for Dragon Slayer, ILM's Phil Tippett pioneered a method where the puppets were moved by rods, in a similar way to how marionettes were puppeteered. These rods were driven by computer-controlled motors, and in the same fashion as motion control, the character's animation could be designed and programmed and then executed. Because the puppet was moving, the resulting footage had realistic motion blur. And Tippett called this technique Go Motion. And here we can see the result. It's pretty realistic for a 30 year old uh, shot. <coughs> Go Motion was a major step forward in animated characters. And then in 1993, Jurassic Park stomped its way onto our screens. The project had actually planned to use Go Motion by Phil Tippett for the full body dinosaurs. However, the producers saw some early tests at ILM for CG dinosaurs and they decided to switch completely over. However, ILM wanted to capitalize on the well-established skills of the traditional animators, so they developed this, the Dinosaur Input Device, or DID. This allowed the traditional animators to work as they would do with a normal stop-motion puppet. You can see the small encoder boxes on each joint, each joint of the puppet or armature. Each box would record the angle of its joint and then that data would be transferred to the equivalent joint of it on the digital dinosaur. Now, These traditional animators were very finely tuned to the subtle nuances of character animation and the DID allowed them to imbue the CG dinosaurs with those nuances. Combining this with the huge strides ILM had been taking in creating realistic looking dinosaurs, Jurassic Park was a real quantum leap forward for visual effects it's difficult to actually overstate just how much of a watershed moment Jurassic Park actually was. Computer graphics had finally come of age. Previously, visual effects had been fairly obvious trickery, relying on the audience to hold a willing suspension of disbelief and just accept the gag. But here were totally believable creatures, which the audience bought into 100%, and the age of trickery was over. So finally, last year, the moment that many have been waiting for finally arrived, ILM, set up shop in the UK. The London visual effects scene is a pretty vibrant industry, based in Sopham. Not that long ago, it was a small cottage industry, serving British filmmaking. In 2001, however, they brought the first film featuring everyone's favourite boy wizard, Harry Potter. (coughs) That film, The Philosopher's Stone, London's VFX studios were given their chance to really showcase their work on a global stage. And through a huge collaborative effort, they pulled it off. This was the breakthrough that they'd been waiting for, and the work started to flood in from around the world. In the 10 years between 2003 and 2013, the industry grew from 1,000 to 6,000 people. ILM had been considering a London base for a number of years, attracted by the flourishing talent base there. And Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm in 2012 sowed the seeds for new Star Wars films. After Pinewood Studios was selected to be the production base, the time was right for ILM to establish its London studio. it is. I joined ILM in February last year, joining 12 others, working at this tiny little rented office in Oxford Circus. One of my first tasks was helping out with recruitment, and we had over 2,000 job applications in my first two months there. Uh, That's without a single advertisement. By the summer we'd moved into a proper home, a house, and now we've got 160 staff. Our first big project was Avengers Age of Ultron, which we completed last March. We delivered 250 shots, some of which were extremely complex. And considering we barely existed a year earlier, I'm really, really proud of this achievement. One of the core principles of ILM is an open and collaborative culture, and we've been very careful to nurture that in London from the very start. Creativity and innovation are absolutely fundamental to our work, and everyone is encouraged to voice ideas and opinions, no matter how junior or senior they are. Now I'd like to take you through the various stages of a typical project at ILM. We can split our work across the three main phases of the film project. Pre-production is laying the groundwork for the project, activities such as drafting the script, drawing up storyboards, and location scouting. Production is, as the name suggests, uh, where the various film units are on set, or on location, shooting the film. And post-production is the finishing touches, such as editing, sound design, and color adjustments. Now, a common misconception is that all VFX work is done in post-production. It's true that the bulk of our work is done in that phase, but as you can see from this chart, we're involved right from the very start. So first of all, let's have a look at pre-production. So first up is concept art. We have a full-time art department in both San Francisco and London who are able to engage with our clients from very, very early on to help develop ideas for characters, environments, things like that. So here's an example from the first Iron Man movie. Our design studies started with armor variations, looking at things like weapons and where gadgets might be placed, as well as initial designs on how the suit would actually be assembled. The look of dynamic items such as Iron Man's hand and foot thrusters were also started out at this stage. One of the important aspects of the concept art stage is to develop not just the look but the tone of certain key points of the film. This image is from near the end of the film. It's quite a poignant moment when Tony Stark takes a suit past peak altitude and calls it to malfunction. Now, right through to develop, delivering finished shots, we keep referring back to this concept art to make sure that we're hitting those emotional beats that have developed at this stage. So, modeling is where we take the ideas developed in concept art and move them into the three dimensional world, starting to build up the surfaces that will make up our collection of digital assets. Here's Davy Jones from Pirates of the Caribbean 2, alongside the concept art. You can see the high level of detail that our modelers uh, incorporate into them. About the barnacles and the sea life that the characters of Davy Jones' crew acquired a more organic modeling approach, and we used a newly adopted modeling technique to do this. It's kind of like digital sculpting. You can see the close correlation here between the Davy model and the original concept art. Now, although our modelers work to a very fine degree of detail, there is a performance trade-off when it comes to actually using these models in shots. If a model is too complex, it takes too long to process in later stages. So a point is reached where any extra detail is added at this stage, look development. This is all bespoke work done on, mainly on principal assets such as key characters or environments. Here we look at material and surface properties and start to work in that extra fine detail. One half of this stage is shading or describing how a material reacts to light hitting it. We look at material's properties, such as how shiny or matte it is, or whether it's smooth or bumpy. Think of it as like an Airfix model kit, you know, a part could be made from plastic, or metal, or clear plastic. And the shading de- determines the difference between these super materials. Now one of the most complex surfaces to recreate is skin. And a vital part of our approach to skin is called subsurface scattering. In other words, it's how light bounces around underneath the surface of the skin. You can see with our good friend W here, uh, he looks like kind of like a clay model without And yet, with the scattering, it brings a richness and a realism that is to the skin, especially in kind of more translucent areas such as his ears. Uh, texturing works in tandem shading to determine the colors and patterns of the surface. Textures are often painted by hand and applied to the surface of the model. Think of it as applying paint onto that Airfix model. You can see here how closely the textured model matches our concept art. Here we can see Davy with his final shading and texture work complete. So we really cranked up the subsurface scattering on Davy to achieve his skin's more translucent appearance. Incidentally, Bill Nye called the grey suit he wore on set his computer pajamas. <laughs> so let's go back to Iron Man for another example. This is an early test shot, a physical suit, to see how it looked in motion. Notice there are no jointed sections, just the major body parts, so it moved and looked great. However, as it turned out, with all the pieces in place, it just wasn't that easy to perform it. Here's a more final version of the real suit, worn by a stand-in on the left, and our model textured and shaded digital suit on the right. We use extensive reference photography of the physical assets to help drive our look development work on the digital counterparts. Here we can see some reference photographs of, uh, of one of Tony Stark's earlier suits, the Mark II, built by prop makers at San Winston Studios. We pay really close attention to fine details, such as the rivets and the direction of the brushing effect on each panel. And here's our digital suit on the right. Now this shot is from a sequence in Iron Man, where Tony tests out all the various moving flight surfaces of the Mark II suit. The scene was filmed using the practical suit, as we can see here, but it, as it turned out, it was too restrictive. Any small details that had to move or open up would require too much reconstruction and integration work into the practical suit. Unfortunately, fortunately, the digital suit was looking so good that they decided to go full CG. So this is the full Mark II systems check sequence. Iron Man is fully digital, which allowed all the intricate component animation work that you can see here. The sequence was done by an animator called Keiji Amaguchi, who went on to oversee some of the most complicated transformations on the Transformers movie. Actually, there is an awesome story about Keiji. He was looking after some, they were developing the, uh, the Transformers uh, movies for the robots, the transformations for the first movie, and they were sitting in a, in a meeting with Michael Bay, the director, and um, they were struggling with Optimus Prime and how he was transforming. And um, basically, it was too gentle for Keiji. He, he had this idea of Optimus as being this big sumo wrestler kind of guy, that had to be really dramatic. And he basically exploded one day, and just said to Michael Bay that he was insulting the, tri- the Japanese style of animation. Everyone uh, <laughs> hope you can't say that to Michael Bay. But he turned around and said, you're the guy. you to look after Optimus Prime. And um, he, you know, it turned out pretty well. I mean, there were yeah. over 10,000 moving parts in Optimus. And he looked after every single one of them. So Creature Setup is where we establish the physics behind various aspects of our characters. Although this is linked to animation, it's a more fundamental stage of the creature's movement. We build a bespoke toolset for each character, um, which the animators use to create the character's performance. So we start with the model. Here again is our friend Davy, And then the basic rig is built. Now think of this as the character's skeleton. Once the outer surface has been modelled, we build the character from the inside out. So the rig drives muscles, goes into flex, and bulge, jiggle, and they in turn push the outer surface around. It's a very anatomical approach, which requires a huge amount of research for each character. Now the rig gets more complex. In the case of Davy Jones, his, one of his defining characteristics was his tentacle beard. We'll take a look at the beard in more detail now. First of all, the creature development team defined the fundamental movement characteristics of the beard's tentacles and created a set of rules to control these characteristics. There was a base setting which created for all these controllers which established the normal movement for the beard. However, Baby often had violent mood swings, and to have to change all these individual controllers to reflect his emotional state would have been very, very cumbersome for the animators. So the Creature Dev team grouped all these controllers together under one master beard controller, which allowed animators to quickly dial in beard animation to cover Davy's wide emotional range from sleeping right through to boiling rage. Another important feature of Davy's beard is his octopus-like suckers, and the Creature Dev team created these stiction rules, which allowed each tentacle to adhere to adjacent objects until a defined amount of force would pull them apart and break the connection. Here's a couple of examples of his beard setup and how it translated through to the final shot. This may all sound like each step led smoothly <laughs> to the next, but you know, visual effects is an experimental business, especially with rule-based animation. You'll find that things don't always turn out quite like how you intended. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how they actually took this and just went, yeah, we'll render it and composite it. Just <laughs> take it through <laughs> the final stages. Just, just, <laughs> every project we do has a bloopers kind of Folder that we put, because this looks ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so, running in tandem with the previous three stages is asset development. This looks after everything that isn't a hero or principal element of our work, the more kind of generic items. So in ILM we have what we call a parts library of thousands of bits of machinery that can be used in many purposes, such as the destruction of mechanical objects or building additional detail into models. They're all fully modeled, textured, and shaded. So now we move from pre-production into production. VFX teams now play an integral role in the production environment. On most productions we have a team led by the VFX supervisor out on set. It's the VFX supervisor's role to advise the production team on relevant aspects of shots that that the VFX team will later be working on. A VFX team will also constantly be taking reference photography. Think back to the Iron Man look development earlier, and the photography used to develop our digital suits. This photography can be of actors in costume, environments, or props. It's not uncommon for a large project to gather hundreds of thousands of reference photographs. We also gather data for each shot, starting with the camera. Things like lens, camera position, shutter speed, and aperture are just some of the, the uh, parameters gathered. This helps in replicating the camera in our digital environment later on. Now, blue and green screen photography has been an essential technique of filmmaking since the 1930s. We shoot a, an object against a blue or green screen in order to generate an element called a matte. And a mat allows us to cut that object out and superimpose it over another element. Before computer graphics, this process was done photochemically using different types of film stock, but now it's all done using specialist software. And the reason we use blue and green is that these are the two colors the least present in the color of human skin. With the advent of digital cameras, there's been a tendency towards green screens because green, green performs better with digital film. That's quite a challenge when you're shooting multiple, multiple elements as you have to get the camera moves to exactly match. And this is where motion control really comes into its own. And here's the uh, resulting composite. Now look at how much fine detail we can pick up, like the dirt on the back of the uh, windscreen glass. Element shoots, much in the same way that we developed small reusable digital assets, we put a lot of time into shooting elements. As good as CG is, there's still much to be said for shooting real elements. We have a library of over 17,000 elements, from explosions, dust hits, bullet hits, smoke, steam, rain, blood splats, whatever whatever you want. Some of these elements actually go all the way back to Star Wars. A big benefit of ILM's long history is that we, have members of staff, who are more than happy to go out to the car park, blow something up and shoot it. <laughs> this is key to ILM's approach to a problem. The best solution is not necessarily the most technically accomplished, and I'm not showing you an example. This establishing shots, uh, the establishing shots of the city of Thieves from Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, were widely praised for their beautiful vistas. Have a look at the waterfalls. While the rest of this, the shot is entirely CG, the waterfalls were actually salt, poured from scoops and filmed against a black background. Very low tech. <laughs> now so far, all the work I've shown you has had a project-wide scope. Now we, look, we move into looking at individual shots. I'd like to take you through a typical shot's progression within the island pipeline. First off, the client sends us the plate, which is the principal filmed element for a shot. Now, for example, this could be a set into which we have to place a digital creature, or an actor in front of the green screen which we will have to place into a digital environment. So the example we're going to use is a shot from Transformers, the first Transformers film. Now the brief was for a large robot called Scorponok to burst up out of the sand in the pursuit of these soldiers. So the place it shows us the uh, soldiers and um, some pretty impressive pyrotechnics, special effects. Our first stage of shot production is Layout and Matchmove. Matchmove uses special software to analyze the plate and create a virtual camera. This is where all the camera data meticulously gathered out on set comes into play. It's a huge help to have as many variables locked down as possible and then let the software figure out the rest. The result of this process is a virtual camera which exactly matches the physical camera used to shoot the plate. Layout adds 3D models to match elements in the scene such as the ground and the soldier. Now we have a virtual camera and environment set up, we can enter the final phase, post-production. Here we can start adding digital assets that were created during the pre-production phase. So first up is animation. So our animators take the digital characters, which have been set up for them by the Creature Development Team, and use each character's bespoke toolset to bring it to life. In this case, we have scored them up here. And sometimes the shot will require features which are too complex to animate by hand. This kind of work falls to our simulation artists. Now these artists create particles or fluid bodies and direct how they behave by establishing sets of rules similar to how the Creature Development team used rules to control aspects of the creature's physicality. These rules are commonly physics-based, such as gravity and wind speed and things like that. The effects artists typically create things like water, sand, dust, and steam, especially when these things have to interact with our digital assets, such as our characters. In this example, it's obviously the sand particles uh, streaming off the scorecard. Next up is lighting and rendering. Animators will pass their work on to the lighters, who will swap the simply textured animation model for the fully textured and shaded model for the look dev process. They then analyze various light sources in the scene, and in this case, the principal light source is the sun. But you also have lots of light bouncing back up off the sand. They'll take all of this into account and use it to render moving images, which are then passed on to the final stage, which is compositing. Uh, first off, we need to layer scorpionock in behind the soldiers. This task is done in rotoscoping. Uh, rotoscoping is a, typically an entry-level position for artists. It involves the creation, by hand, of masks to cut out the elements that haven't been shot on a blue or green screen. This is first done uh, use, using individual sheets of card um, cut out with a scalpel, frame by frame. And if you consider that there are 24 frames per second of film, you can just imagine how labor-intensive that was. These days, we draw digital shapes around the elements in question. And these shapes can be adjusted frame by frame. It's still a very labor-intensive process, but it's actually a great way for new artists to analyze plates and, in fine detail and study the way things move on screen. Now, applying those shapes a masks to our plate, the soldiers are now cut out. These masks will allow our compositors in the next step to layer all those renders from the lighters behind the soldiers. And typically, a rotoscoping team will also handle paint, which is, generally, un- removal of unwanted elements from a scene. Things like wires, camera crew, or characters who are now dead due to a script rewrite. <laughs> <laughs> so, now we turn to my area, compositing. And Compositing is the final stage of a typical VFX shot. All those disparate elements, the plate, the rendered rounded CG, simulations, and blue screen elements are all brought together to create one composite image. The trick here is to make it look like it was all captured by one camera. A lot of work goes into balancing these all these different elements together. Uh, they could have been shot in different days, in different locations, different cameras. A compositor will adjust things like color and balance, color balance, contrast levels, and focus to bring them all together in one seamless image. A keen understanding of photography is essential here. Uh, the small details really, really count, such as film grain, depth of field, composition, and exposure levels. All these small details add up to help the audience resolve the com- composite as one image. Look at how you know, Scorpionock is being layered into all those clouds of sand. Huge amount of work that will go into just that. Although it's actually last on the list, Digimat is a process that happens in tandem with the previous uh, stages. The name is actually shorthand for digital matte painting. And it's time for a quick history lesson. I'm sure, everyone remembers this the final shot from Raiders of the Lost Ark. <coughs> I'll now show you the portion of the shot that is actually real. (laughs) Everything else was a painting. Mm -hmm. It was all painted on glass by Mike Pingrazio at ILM. It took three months to complete it. The use of what were called match shots goes actually all the way back to the birth of film with the Lumiere brothers in the 1890s. Due to their nature, match shots had to be either stationary or have a very, very simple camera move. Fast forward to 2012's Avengers Assemble and the climactic battle for New York which was actually shot in Cleveland. The Digimap team built 20 blocks of New York to give the director a huge digital playground in which to choreograph the final battle. And to achieve this, team photographed New York from cranes on top of 35 different buildings covering every possible angle. They shot over 275,000 photographs and covered seven miles worth of streets. These photographs were stitched together to create almost 2,000 panoramic spheres each sphere covering 360 degrees around its location. These were then projected onto 3D models of the relevant buildings that make up these 20 blocks. Finally, the team added moving 3D versions of trees, cars, and people that had been previously removed from the photographs to bring movement and life to the city. The sheer level of detail they went to meant that the camera could get really, really close to the buildings. Now, as amazing as those original map paintings are, we've come a long way from oils and glass. Our Digimat team now has the ability not to only extend but completely rework the cinematography of a shot, and in addition to creating entire shots from scratch. Mm-hmm. And that's our pipeline from start to finish. The flexible nature of our workflow means that we can incorporate changes into any point along the pipeline, and they will ripple out to the rest of the project very efficiently. It's really essential for us to do this so that we can, we can react quickly and effectively to any changes. So we've seen ILM's past, and I've given you a peek into it's present, but what about the future? Well, BFX is an industry of constant change and innovation is our greatest asset. ILM is going to continue providing cutting-edge BFX for feature films. but now that's not the only trick I've ever seen. I'm very happy to be able to share with you a short video on ILM XLAB, a brand new facility launched a few weeks ago. XLAB is going to focus on emerging immersive media streams, such as virtual reality and all reality. This video will give you a good idea of what we've got planned with x I think when you get a room full of creatives from movies and video games and the technical sector, what we've got, and you get them all in the same space, you're going to create something pretty exciting. Thanks to the coming of a new generation of Star Wars films, ILM, Skywalker Sound and Lucasfilm itself are engaged in the creation and expansion of a universe on a scale that's never been seen before. We've been creating virtual worlds for a long time, but when you can actually see it in front of you in real time and interact with it, to grab an iPad and drag around on the screen and instantly see the results of your creative decision, it completely changes the kinds of experiences we can make. We're starting to push the envelope on what we think is possible to be shown in a real-time environment. We're entering an age of immersive entertainment where it is possible to collapse the walls that separate us from story experiences. Imagine you are watching a scene, but then you were able to pass through the invisible wall that seems to separate you from that movie. You can go further into the world in which the story is taking place. No one really knows how audiences are going to experience virtual reality and augmented reality and immersive cinema, but I do know that we have the most expansive universe to explore in Star Wars. The trick is figuring out what storytelling looks like in that space, and part of what I'm excited about that's going on here is we're being afforded the opportunity to ask ourselves that question and explore that together. We've created X-Lab as a place where we combine the story department inside Lucasfilm, ILM, Skywalker Sound, and the technology available to us to create experiential entertainment. The mission of ILM X-Lab is to create completely new experiences. We're actually opening our doors now for the first time for experienced creators to collaborate with us. I think we are experiencing a renaissance with experiential storytelling. That's something that in a way, George did with the first Star Wars. He recognized that storytelling and technological innovation go hand in hand. And that's something that as a company, we're uniquely suited to do. I actually had a go at this last year on a visit to San Francisco, and it was absolutely incredible. It'll be really exciting to see where we can go with this. So that brings us to the end of my talk. Thank you very, very much for listening. And uh, I think we have a few minutes for anyone who's got any questions. absolutely fascinating thank you very much and um, there's a really clear kind of linear breakdown in, in the um, progression of the, the, the work that you put there but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the um, that thing you said about being very open and collaborative and um, the kind of impact that has on, on how the work changes or, or develops or ideas come in from left field well, I've, I've worked at quite a few different visual effects companies over, over the years, and a lot of them to deal with the the larger uh, projects, they do you do tend to get a very kind of factory-like approach, you know, where it's just you end up feeling a bit like you're a cog in the wheel. Where I think ILM's approach, just because of how it grew up, it's just it's been a very organic kind of um, uh, development of the company. Um, in fact. I went over to San Francisco last year and uh, met with a guy who had been there since 1986, and his first film was something like Harold the Duck. And um, he said, you know, when he joined, he was very much kind of invited in, very much, felt very much part of the Island family, and the motto there was, have fun, make money.' And, that was it. and that's kind of, you know, it. Because we're quite a small studio in London, it kind of helps because there's only 160 of us, which is a pretty small studio in, in comparative terms. So we all know each other very, very well. And I think there's one of the one of the key things about ILM is kind of this constant discourse and discussion. And everybody is encouraged to, um, like I said, to voice ideas and opinions, and that's viewed as contributing to. You know, we don't kind of stand on any one approach and go, that's the way it has to be done. Um, you know, everything has to be questioned and taken apart. And um, Dennis Muir, one of our senior uh, visual effects supervisors, he's been there from, since Star Wars. Um, you know, he says as soon as he finishes a project, he feels instantly that, that those techniques and those, that kind of approach is completely obsolete and he has to start thinking about the next level. So I think it's that constant kind of uh searching for the next you know, it's questioning what we do, why we do. Um and being open to anybody questioning that, you know. Um I mean there are some incredibly talented people working in London and you know, we've hired people right out from university. Um so and their input is as valuable as anyone else's. I think it 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 does help because, you know, when we're dealing with a project where you know you could be you could be asked you know okay this character is now dead we have to remove all these scenes now we need updates by the end of the week you know you have to kind of rally the troops and kind of get things going so a very kind of open and collaborative culture definitely helps in that in that regard. Hi, uh, firstly, thank you for clearing up the green screen versus blue screen thing, because I've wondered that for a very long time. Um, I was just wondering, judging by it's sizzle real, there's nothing uh, particularly that seems to challenge, uh, or be particularly more difficult than anything else. I was just thinking back to a few years ago when Pixar were here and they were talking about the challenges that uh, realistic fur was causing them, for example. Uh, what, what is the, the kind of the most challenging thing uh, for you to deal with right now to recreate or to, to create in the first place, uh, to create realistically? Well, I think, you know, speaking purely from computer graphics, you know, computers are excellent at doing machines and metal and things like that. That's why, you know, Terminator 2 was a very early evolution of computer graphics. It was a shiny metal guy and that was, you know, what computer graphics could do at the time. Um, I think, still, challenge wise, I think a realistic human is still definitely the most challenging thing. You may have heard of a term called the uncanny valley. It's how, you know, it's the closer we get to kind of uh, achieving a realistic synthetic human being, the the harder the job gets because the brain just doesn't want to recognize there can be tiny, tiny, tiny things that, uh, you know, just throw you off, you know. To give an example, like for um, we just finished Avengers: Age of Ultron, and one of our, the characters that we worked on is Hulk. Um, now, to get Hulk looking right as somebody you could kind of identify with, the human aspect of him, we did things like we took um, dental molds of Mark Ruffalo's mouth. We photographed his the, the the size of his eyes, the meniscus on the bottom between the eyelid and the eye, um, very close up photographs of his skin. We had all the kind of the birthmarks and moles and all sorts of stuff that he has. You know, even down to the point that our Hulk actually had nose hair. <laughs> so it's, yeah, but I think that obviously Hulk is a you know, slightly different because he's a he's a superhuman character. But I think yeah, still. Definitely the challenge that they got pretty close to Benjamin Buckner, I say, because that was an extremely realistic looking kind of old Brad Pitt. But um, I think having a, a completely believable human is still some way off, definitely. To um, bounce off of one of the uh, previous questions, um, do you think that there is a limit to how far VAFX can go? And if it's Approaching, and if um, if it does approach, like what, um, how far can it go, basically? It's a difficult one. I know there's been a lot of kind of backlash against CG and the use of CG, um, and I think I think it's it's more in the way that how filmmakers use it. Sometimes you get the impression that it's like a kid in a sweet shop; they're just going crazy. Um, I think as as visual effects facilities there's a there's a responsibility in our part to kind of guide the filmmaker in um, how to use the different technologies to tell the story. I and mean, ultimately, you know, ILM isn't about creating awesome computer graphics, it's about creating compelling images that tell a story and you know, have an emotional connection to the audience. That's the core kind of goal of ILM. Um, you know, and that's evident from things like salt waterfalls from Star Wars. If they will use whatever it's not about using big flashy technology. Now, as Jurassic Park showed, it just happened at that time that the technology was at the point where it could actually do what they wanted it to do. Um, I think VFX will continue to, you know, push boundaries. Um I think as long as you know, uh as long as our challenge is presented to us by filmmakers who want us to, you know, create something that nobody's ever seen, you know, you think that, you know, we, we've, with the latest Star Wars movie or the latest Jurassic Park, you know, that oh my God, how can it possibly get any better? But you know, it just keeps keeps going. So I think it's still got it's got quite a bit to go yet. Definitely. I think we have time for one more question. Hi there, thanks. Hello. Ah, uh, Thanks for a great talk. uh, Really interesting. Thank you. Um, uh, Just to end with then, just uh, a question that's probably going through a lot of people's heads at the moment. From what you've seen, is number seven going to be any good? (laughs) (laughs) You can just say yes or no if you like. It'll be good enough. um, It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Thank you everyone for coming and uh, may the force be with right you.